Today, uh, we are privileged to have back uh, Dr. John Gassaway. Uh, he is a sports psychologist with a clinical psychology degree, doctorate with a concentration in sports and exercise science, played soccer overseas, personal trainer, ran a fitness studio. John, we're, uh, we're happy to have you back. What have you been up to? Oh, it's great to be back, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity again. So I'm now working at Luke Air Force Base, where I'm optimizing the performance of the F-16 and F-35 fighter pilots. And it's been awesome working with these guys and just trying to get them up there and absolutely clear in the head and everything they need to do while they hurdle themselves through space at mock whatever they're going. So it's been cool. Today, what I'd like to talk about or what we'd like to talk about here is talk a little bit about motivation, kind of that process, just identifying some problems around teamwork, maybe how to address them, and then a few mental things when it comes to like dealing with your opponent. And then lastly, we've talked with a few different trainers and physical therapists, things like that. So kind of that mentality uh, as you're recovering from an injury. Sounds so, awesome. Yeah, we'll just hop right in to the, uh, the motivation piece. So maybe the season's just started or maybe you know, you're getting prepared, you want to do your best, but maybe you're not motivated or maybe you're lacking that motivation. I guess from, from your standpoint, where does motivation kind of come from? So I think there's two different kinds of motivation we can attack and discuss where each of those come from and the way that we can use those as tools to make sure that we stay motivated or to keep us moving in the direction we want to move in terms of our performance. And the, the two different types are intrinsic or internal motivation and then extrinsic or external motivation. The easier one to talk about is usually internal motivation because it originates from ourselves. It's our passion. It's what we want to do. It gives us drive. And then it's also highly correlated to our values. So as an example, if you have a value of helping other people, well, then if you have the opportunity to help other people, you don't need to have a lot of motivation behind it. You are just intrinsically or internally driven to do that and have it done. So in terms of kickball and in terms of performance and having fun, if fun is one of your values and you have fun playing kickball, then that's going to be an easy way to kind of see how that's going to work. Other values that might come out just in terms of what your population might be looking at like alcohol. <laughs> yeah. So, so socializing, having a good time, <laughs> alcohol might be part of it. You know, any of those things, any values that you hold with that. Now, my guess would be, though, that the alcohol itself is probably not the value. It's what comes with the alcohol, which would be, you know, feeling loose, feeling free, having fun, socializing with friends, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Would... So in, unless you're a brewer, then I would say alcohol in and of itself is a value. 
So like I'm motivated to have fun and play kickball, but not the preparation aspect of it, you know, working out to get in shape for it. So any advice? <laughs> Maybe on that intrinsic side of it. Uh, right. So, so that part might be an extrinsic part of it for you mm-hmm. and, and for others who are looking at the kind of commitment you have to make in order to get yourself to perform to the best level in the kickball in and of itself. So if I'm intrinsically motivated to play kickball, but that's all it is, it's just having fun. Well, then the other things that I would have to have values in order to say that I'm going to work out, commit the time, get healthier, eat healthier, research how to be a better kicker or, you know, kind of get skills coaches on how to round the bases better, different things like that. I have to have intrinsic motivation for each of those things, even though they're components of kickball, they're not what my selling point is. And so looking at the internal motivation, if you're not motivated for these other things that could increase your performance, If you can find other ways to make those things internal motivations, then obviously everything becomes easier. So if you're working with a skills coach and the skills coach is totally awesome and the skills coach is fun and funny and likes to drink alcohol as well, all of a sudden that becomes something really easy to do, even though it's helping you with kickball, it's still another value of yours is being associated to the training. Okay. Would you maybe relate that to like a a group fitness class? Right. So group fitness class or anywhere where you can find that value. And, And certainly we can move over to the external kind of motivators, but the internal motivation is just looking at what are things that you experience or what are things that make you feel accomplished or things that give you drive and try and associate that thing to any aspects of the kickball that will allow you to train better, train harder, get ready for the season that kind of stuff. And so those values are all things like, you know, being being a competitor, learning, if learning is a value of yours, and you want to learn more and more about kickball, and whether that's the history of it, whether it's how to kick, whether it's placement of the ball, different things like that, looking into what values you have and how to associate those to kickball in different aspects of the game and in your performance, all of those things that are internal values and values that you try and adhere to, that makes all of the internal motivation easier. It's just trying to attach them and link them. Yeah, so what's uh, kind of interesting about that is that you've got people that are personal trainers. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, that's ingrained in them to be fit to do those things. But then you have the rest of, I mean, the rest of the kickball community. I think people are always willing to talk it and talk strategy. But yeah, let's talk uh, the external then, dive into that a little bit. Sure. So, so external or extrinsic motivators are things that kind of come about not because they're internally driven, but because there's something needing to get us over that hump, so to say. So there's always, you know, two obvious external motivators are reward and punishment. And so I'm more amiable to do something if I see a reward. So whether that reward is getting paid, whether the reward is the kind of winning a championship or the reward is being able to be, you know, the, the pinch kicker or play a particular base. If that reward is there, then I'm more likely to kind of pursue it. And then there's the punishment. So if the punishment is, you know, if you don't do this, you're not going to be part of the team. Or if you 
um, can't handle this part, then, you know, we're not going to have you play that position. That kind of punishment and reward is something that's external that can get you going. In terms of just practicing and things like that, if you were on a team and the team said, if you don't show up to practice, then you will not start, well, then you might be externally motivated to show up to practice just in order to get that. And then you might have different things that the team comes up with, just, you know, little rewards they hand out, like at the end of the game, hey, you know, you you had the best performance today, so here's a, you know, little rubber doll that we're going to pass around throughout the season and whoever has the rubber doll obviously did the best performance those little things are external motivators and they're not as powerful as internal motivators but they can still get the job done when you need it another example of an external motivator is guilt (laughs) that's a great one because it's basically you kind of do something not because you want to but you do it because you know you'll feel so guilty if you don't do it that you're going to feel like you let yourself down And for a lot of people, that is exercise where it's like, well, I know that if I don't do my exercise, I'm going to feel down on myself. So therefore, I'm going to go do it anyway, or I'll feel guilty having left the personal trainer there waiting for me. I'll feel guilty that I'm not there because I'm supposed to be. So I'm going to show up even though I don't want to be there. And so guilt is a good external motivator and can get us through some things, but obviously it's not good for the long run, the long duration. Another external motivator is kind of means to an end. Um, An example I really like to use with this one is when you go to class for, uh, well, you go to school for anything and there's the classes that you really enjoy and are totally passionate about and you want to learn more. And then there's a class that just sucks and you don't see how it has any relation to any part of your education, but you have to get that class passed in order to get your degree. And so it's a means to an end. I'm going to do it because it's going to get the end result, but I have no real drive to get it done myself. And so those are some examples of external motivators that can help give you different ideas of maybe how to kind of put some things together. I guess let me ask this because I think sometimes people may be exercise ahead of ahead of the kickball season uh, because they don't want to suck. I mean, like, that's a lot of things that I invest that in. Sometimes people can't find motivation to exercise, but then they go through something devastating in their life or a situation that comes up that maybe it could be a health situation or whatever that may be. But it's kind of that emotional attachment. Hey, if you don't start exercising, this is going to be a health problem for you in the long run. Uh, Where do those things kind of fall into play? So if you look at the exercising in order to remain healthy, because you know it's going to be a problem in the end, I mean, that's a means to an end, external reward. It's also guilt if you're not doing it and knowing that you might be jeopardizing your health in the future or your life in the future. As far as big things like um, lessons learned or life-changing events and things like that, those are pretty powerful. And a lot of times I would actually... If I had enough time, I would talk to somebody in more of the psychological aspect of how they're probably identifying values that they've compromised in their life. And once they realize that they've compromised those values that they want to adhere to, it's so much easier for the internal motivation to take over because it's something where they're not willing to compromise that value any longer. And it makes it easier for them to attach that value to something that they're trying to do. I think, you know, in in terms of If we just broke motivation down and said motivation is easier if it has a couple components, that might help this dialogue as well. So motivation is really a lot higher if you feel competent in what you're being asked to do. So as an example, if I went to your 
your kickball league. And I said, okay, so I want to help you guys practice kickball. Well, all of you would feel competent to a degree to do those things. Whereas if I went to your league and I said, okay, we're going to practice handstands. Well, a lot of you guys would be like, I don't feel competent doing that. And I don't really see a reason to do it. And so it's not going to be very high on my motivation factor. <laughs> so being competent in doing something really leads, leads, uh, lends a lot of credence to saying, okay, I'm, I'm motivated to try and do that. So especially for exercise, if you don't feel competent doing the exercises that are exercises you're trying to do, you're not likely going to continue to exercise that way. If you find an exercise you're more competent in, you're a lot more likely to do it. Another aspect of motivation or another kind of piece of it is autonomy. So being able to make your own decisions. So if I, again, went to your league and I gave everybody the same workout and you have no choice in what the exercises are and no choice in how often you exercise, no choice in kind of how intense the exercise is without those choices, there's no autonomy. And so you kind of feel like, no, I'm just, somebody's dictating my life and I'm going to have a lot of resistance to that. So if I make an exercise kind of program for you and it's something you feel competent that you can do and then I also give you choices for how long you do the exercises or how often or when and things like that you're going to be more autonomous and that will also give you a little bit more of a kind of incentive or motivation to do it the third part of motivation is collective so kind of feeling like you're a part of something else if I tell you you're going to go do these exercises and you're going to do them alone you might not be as motivated if I say you're going to do them with a team or you're going to do them with your team or with a part of your team. And so the more you feel collective or together with whatever that kind of task is that I'm assigning you, those three things, competence, autonomy, and collectiveness, if those three things are attached to it, it's a lot easier to get it done and a lot easier to get by. In. Okay. I, let's, uh, let me ask the question about techniques maybe for an individual. So I actually had read a book. It's, it's by a, like military-based. It's a guy named David Goggins. He's like an ultra-marathon runner. And he talks about some different ways to motivate yourself by like creating a highlight reel. That was one thing that he talks about. So think, pull from your past and remember some of the great things that you've done. He talks about pulling from a difficult time in your life and realizing you went through something and being like, put that helps motivate you to never go back there. Um, outworking other people. So, hey, I'm going into this kickball season. So, you know what? I'm going to outwork Simon. I just mean, there's a lot of different ideas out there. Do you have anything that you would, you would recommend or any thoughts on those? Yeah, all of those are, are really good ideas, and all of them are very common and, and, and very effective if you use them appropriately. So as far as a highlight reel, what I try to do is if we want to have internal motivation, the highlight reel you want to fill with things that you have done, just as the um, author of the book was talking about, is if it's something you're pulling from your past where you can replay in your head when you had that home run kick or when you caught the out, or when you, you know, did something, and you can play that as a highlight reel in your head, it's a lot more effective than playing a highlight of somebody else, even though those can be effective to a degree. So watching Michael Jordan jump from the free throw line to dunk the ball is super motivating to me, even though that's not me. But I can still watch it and feel like that's awesome. That's part of a highlight reel, because it's just what is the human body truly capable of doing. So highlight reels are great, especially if you can use your own past and your own stuff in there. I also really tell people that they should associate it to music that pumps them up or makes them feel really good. And they can choose any type of music they want. They can kind of make different music um, 
you know, different songs or different beats or different whatever for different types of highlights that they've made for themselves. Then motivational quotes and things that really kind of you can attach a lot of meaning to and personal meaning. And again, getting back to the values, if you're reading a quote and that quote is associated to one of your values, and then you can kind of get yourself pumped up and motivated looking at the quote and keeping yourself moving forward. That's awesome. The other thing that you mentioned was competition. So just saying I'm going to outperform somebody else, or I'm going to do it better than somebody else. If that's a value of yours competition, then that's definitely something that's going to drive that um, drive the motivation higher. But if you're not, if, if competition is not one of your values, it's not likely going to lead to a lot of increased motivation. So I think taking those different parts and, and a lot of the stuff you mentioned from the book, it's all stuff that, like I said, if, if you have more time and you can dive into your personal values and really look at how to attach meaning to the things that you're trying to do and the tasks and, the, and, and what you're doing to perform, all of that leads to higher and higher levels of motivation. But highlight reels, music quotes, lessons learned from your past, competition, all of those are fantastic ideas, and I would definitely recommend them. So kickball as a team sport, uh, you mentioned like the collective aspect of motivation. Um, I, I'm a captain of a team, and so it's kind of my job to kind of get the team motivated before a game. Um, and since everyone has their own intrinsic motivations or forms of motivation, how is there like a universal way to motivate like a group of people? And is there like a benefit to like giving a speech before a game or is it better to maybe do like some breathing exercises and clear your mind? It's a really good question because there is a kind of contagion, if you will, of the intensity regulation of a team going into different performances. And so there is a way to get that collective buy-in and especially if you have a team leader who leads by example or who really has a, di a couple different things that they can use at their disposal, one would be humor. Humor is a universal one. If you can get people hu having fun and laughing and engaged, that's a real good way to get motivation up and in that intensity regulation where you want it to be so for top performance. That's spot on. I mean, our, our last captain was, you know, he wasn't our best player but he was the funniest guy on the team. And he, that's kind of how he motivated us was, was through humor. So that, that's a good point. Awesome. I guess the more authentic that you can be as a leader or as a captain, the better it'll be. I had a coach in Germany when I was playing soccer over there. And before a game, he had us all sit there and then he turned on the kind of music from Crimson Tide and it's great, you know, I think it's Hans Zimmerman music and it's motivating and everything, but all of us were sitting in the dark. There was no precursor to it. It was just lights turn the music on and all of us were just kind of dumbfounded and like, okay, <laughs> that was just kind of eerie and creepy. <laughs> so, so quite the backfire. So I don't think that the, the captain of the team was, he wasn't being authentic. He wasn't, that wasn't truly like his kind of thing. It was just kind of, maybe he heard it somewhere and thought it might be a neat idea to try. But I think that the more authenticity you have, the better it is to get the buy-in and the easier it is to just get things to flow. Yeah. So we've had people that give the Braveheart or like the Howard Dean yeah! <laughs> type speech uh, beforehand. There's coaches that give the fundamental Hey, make sure you don't get your base runner out in front of you. 
know where you're going to throw once you get the ball on defense, you know, and very fundamental. Uh, and then you get the humorous side of it. And then you get the Hans Zimmer. I mean, I love, I do love Hans Zimmer while working maybe, but maybe not as a motivational speech. You know, another part of that is it, it's getting that shared experience in the buy-in, but the timing is essential because they actually found that doing research with college teams, that if a coach gives a motivational speech, you know, and then you go warm up or you, or you, let's say you go warm up, you go back into the locker room, the coach gives a motivational speech, everybody's pumped and totally into it. And then you walk out and then they announce the starting lineup. They kind of have the other team come out, they do all this other stuff. And so you're so pumped. And then slowly your intensity decreases, 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 decreases. And then it's time to actually play and you're actually in a lull because there was too much time between when you tried to motivate and when you actually perform. And the research showed that there was an actual decrease in performance in a lot of teams when there was that lull. And so they got rid of some of the coaches got rid of motivational speeches pregame and instead started to do them at different times. Like at halftime, it's a little bit easier if you come right out and you're right back into the game. But it, it, the timing can really be essential, too. You don't want too much time between when you want to perform and when you're trying to motivate. So we just talked about benefits of motivational speeches, the key points of the timing. But now we're maybe a couple games in, right? So teams have played a few times, and we kind of want to talk about identifying problems around teamwork and maybe how to address them before they get out of control. What are maybe some things that you look for when you first come into a new job or a new team uh, that may be some easy things to look for versus the harder things? Teams kind of go through anytime you form a new team or even if it's the same team, but a different season, you usually go through four different steps. I don't know if you guys are familiar with forming, storming, norming, and performing. Have you guys heard that before? I have not. Gotcha. So it's these four steps. So forming is basically the team just coming together and forming into the unit that it's supposed to be with a collective goal and hopefully with an identity. And that's the forming part of it. The storming is what happens next. And it's because different team members are trying to figure out different roles or how they fit or how the team is going to perform or a certain mentality that the team might have. And that can be a lot of storming kind of conflict in interrelated between the team and then the team trying to figure things out. After that happens, the, the next step in the process would be norming. Norming is when you start to normalize what are the expectations between teammates, what are the roles that the team members are playing, different things like that. And then finally you get to performing, which is when it's a solid unit and everything is performing the way that it's intended to perform. So going through those four phases, forming, storming, norming, and performing, especially at the beginning of a season, that's where you're looking at that storming kind of part. And there might be some norming, but a lot of it can be kind of trying to put your toe in the water, see how it feels, and test the temperature before you decide to kind of get all the way in. So working with a team, if I'm brought in and the team wants to know how I can help them effectively become a better team or work through particular difficulties, then it's trying to identify what phase is the team in. And then once I've identified what the phase that the team is kind of currently experiencing as a group, I guess would be the easiest way to say it. I try and look at communication and see if there's communication barriers or the ways that people are communicating and what sort of challenges there might be there. An easier one to deal with is when the communication is more upfront and direct. 
and there's just conflict between members because of diff deferring opinions or deferring ways of, of doing things on the team. It's a little bit more difficult when the communication is more behind the back and hidden and not as pronounced. And then it's a lot more difficult to try and weed through things and try and figure out what's going on with the team. Well, hey, let me ask you on that note. Okay, so there sometimes can be the over-serious player. Uh-huh. So, like, you're in a team, everybody's just like, oh, hey, we're all having fun. And then you've got one person that is maybe way too intense. Or maybe you have the opposite, where you have a, a team that is very, uh, hey, we're looking to take it to the next level. And then you have that one person that's just like, no, I'm just here to have fun. How might you address those things? So that's the motivation within the team. So the motivation behind the person who's real serious is they're really trying to be motivated to be better, to perform at their best, to be on the team that can lead them to effectively get where they want to go. Or you have the opposite, like you suggested, where you have the team who's really intent on getting better and performing better and winning. And then you have the one person who's just there for fun. So the motivation is very low for any sort of commitment other than, you know, showing up and having fun. And so trying to deal with that, sometimes it's interesting because sometimes it serves more of a purpose than is realized by the captain or the team. It's also very dependent on how much influence that particular outlier has on the team. So if it's somebody who doesn't have a particular big influence on the team, then a lot of times they can just ride the team and it won't really matter as much. Whereas if they influence the team a lot, it becomes a lot more challenging. And if you look at the different roles that are played on any team, there is kind of the scapegoat who's the person everyone's just going to blame when something goes wrong. Then there's the hero, the person who's going to kind of win everybody over and do the things that are challenging and do them well. You have the captain or the leader who's somebody they can go to and talk to and everything like that. Sometimes that's the same person as the confidant, which means the person everyone goes to to talk about team matters. Sometimes that's somebody different. You have the clown who's the person who's always going to be joking around and stuff. So like I said, sometimes that person serves such a distinct purpose that if you actually try to remove that person, you have more problems. And it's because if, for example, the scapegoat is all of a sudden gone, everybody starts to have to point the finger at themselves or at new people. And then that creates a whole lot more struggle. Whereas the person who's usually, usually familiar with being the scapegoat and okay with that kind of role it serves a purpose and it allows that purpose to function so that the team can function the way that it can. Is, is someone really okay with that role? Like uh, is someone like, just blame me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. It's not necessarily that they're okay with it because they want to be the scapegoat. They're just okay with it because they're aware that, you know, usually it is something they could have done better and they might not be the person who's just as bought in or as committed. And so they're just kind of okay with it. It's not that they're saying like, yes, please blame me for everything. It's just <laughs> that they're, they're not going to get upset about it. You know, yeah, this was your, your issue or your fault. And they might even laugh. They might even be like, yeah, man, that was a huge mistake. Instead of being like, you know, what the F are you talking about? No, this is something else. Like, so this, the scapegoat doesn't necessarily mean it's like this sacrificial person who's just like totally okay <laughs> with falling on their own sword. It's somebody who just plays the role and they're okay with it. Okay, that makes sense. It seems it seems like it'd be easier to be the scapegoat if you're like a captain. You know, like if a, you lose as a team collectively, you can be like, hey, that's on me. I didn't motivate you guys or I didn't give the right strategy. 
seems like it could be a natural secondary role of a captain. True. And, and that could be very effective until it becomes just passive. So if it's just passive and it's not really asserted. So mm-hmm. what I mean by that is if you're assertive as, as the captain and as the team leader and you're telling them, I'm telling you this because I respect you guys and I respect myself. And this is the way things kind of fell. And this is a responsibility I'm taking upon myself. That's assertion. Whereas when it's passivity, it's basically just saying anything that goes wrong, go ahead and just blame me. Where that's, you're basically saying, I'm responsible for everything and no one else has responsibility. And so it really have, you have to be sure that if you're the scapegoat and the captain, you have to make sure, again, it's authentic and that it's done in an assertive manner where it's something that's going to be addressed and something that's going to be kind of moving forward. Because if it just becomes passive blame, well, again, that's not going to do much for the team. Right. Let's say that you identify a single issue with one person or two people. Is it better to, I guess, calm the problem or in something like a leisure sport like kickball, or is it better to, you know, like uplift the people that are being affected by the problem? It's kind of where you want to put your chips and how much fallout you're looking at. A compromise would basically be meaning that, okay, so the compromise means that we and the rest of the team are not going to be satisfied with the outcome and the people who are being asked to change or asked to do something different aren't going to like changing either. So it's kind of a lose-lose, but it's a compromise because you have to reach that compromise in order to move forward. Otherwise, you have to accommodate, which means that okay, so the relationship we have with these guys on the team is worth more than the battle we would have in trying to make a change. So we'll accommodate by trying to change ourselves a little bit so that it'll fit a little bit easier. This would mean like we're really going to have to get into this and accommodation would be like we're going to have to accommodate to kind of figure out how we can perform better knowing that this is going to be an issue. And the relationship in the accommodation, the relationship is worth more than the battle Whereas with compromise, it's like, no, the relationship might go south, but we're going to have to compromise because we're going to have to figure out something that's going to allow both of us to kind of meet in the middle, even though neither of us are going to be very satisfied with it. So trying to come up with the way that you guys want to work through that, and if it's one or two people, and if they're unwilling to change what you're willing to do to try and move forward, and talking with the rest of the team on how to kind of get into that as well. Most times what I would recommend is for the captain to meet for the people he's trying to elicit change from first and talk to them and see kind of what their feelings are. Then depending on how that goes, talking to the rest of the team either all together or talking to the team about your approach and about the response from the people who are um, not necessarily clicking as well with the team. And then coming together after you've talked to each independently and then coming up with some sort of a consensus. It, it takes a lot of effort. And especially, like I said, it has to be worth your time and your effort to see that there's going to be a change. So most times when there's little things going on, it's kind of like family stuff. Like if there's stuff going on in the family and the family is literally dysfunctional as a result of this stuff, you really have to try and elicit a lot of changes and, and challenges. Whereas If the family can continue to just function, it's just not necessarily pleasant, um, but it's still functional, then a lot of times that's saying like, okay, so where are we in the season? How much is it worth? 
and how functional do we want to be? Yeah. So one thing that we have a lot of people talk to us about is kind of making that breakthrough from being a fun team to being somewhere in the middle to being a top 10 team or a top 15 team, so to speak. Uh, And it really is. It's that mentality between a handful of people don't care as much. And then you've got about six or seven people that care way too much. And I mean, that that's just to be defined, I guess, by the team. But I mean, do you have thoughts on in general on like maybe how to address that side of it? Yeah, I think especially when the team is forming is trying to figure out that buy-in. Because if the team is still forming and it's not, you know, it's it's either forming or storming and you're trying to figure that part out before it starts norming into what this is supposed to be. It's trying to figure out what parts of the team are going to fit in what way. And then if you can figure out, we talked about this in the last podcast a little bit too. If you can figure out the values of your teammates and the motivation of your teammates, then even the ones who are unserious or the ones who are really kind of more just, I want to have a good time. If you could figure out a way to have their values or their motivation brought into the fold with what performing well would mean to them, it can make all the difference in the world. And so the way that we just talked about motivation and trying to find that internal motivation, but trying to find a way to have the value linked to the performance, that would be one of the best ways to kind of get the team who you're trying to pull a couple guys into sort of being a little bit more serious about everything. That would be the best way to try and get their buy-in. Okay. So, and you've worked with teams and you've worked with individuals. What's, the bigger challenge for you? Is it diving into one individual and, you know, kind of seeing how they work as far as motivation, or is it trying to deal with team dynamics, which, which is more challenging for you as a professional dealing, dealing with those things? That's a fantastic question. I would say that for me personally, it's probably been more of a range dealing with teams than it has with individuals, which to me surprises me saying it because If you have a team and the team is functioning well and there is really good leadership and buy-in, it it makes the job really easy. You just basically go in and you kind of pull on a couple pieces, help them recognize and become aware of the things that make them successful. And it's kind of like you're riding a wave with them. And then you can also come in and you've got a team where it's very dysfunctional and you don't have a lot of buy-in and people are at each other's throats. And it's basically like, you're kind of like, well, what can I do to basically make this as comfortable for everybody as possible without even looking at any type of performance? And that range is just huge, especially when you have poor leadership on, on one end and good leadership on the other end. Whereas working with an individual, I think that for me personally, in my experience, it's easier because working with the individual, I have a lot more time and I have a lot more focused energy on that person. So it's easier for me to start reading between the lines and into the smaller things, but I'm only dealing with one person and their personality rather than a group. And so the range is a little bit less, even though it can be very, very difficult at times. I mean, is it more as a team, like the the top down? Versus as an individual, just dealing with the individual. I suppose the way that I just said it, it would seem that way, that the leadership just plays such a huge role. But I've also had teams where leadership was not good, but the team gelled so well that the leadership basically could get ejected from a game and they would still be awesome because they just know (laughs) how 
form. So it might be more complicated than than simple answers, but I, I hope I've answered a little bit. Yeah, yeah. How about uh, as the individual? Is there any way that you could recommend to someone like to step back to check yourself? I mean, like, am I the one causing the problem? Am I the one that is actually demotivating? Or am I the one that's actually, you know, I'm losing my mind over this stuff and it's actually affecting the rest of my team? Yeah. So I, I had a particular athlete talking about how all of these things were not his fault and it was going wrong because of this, that, and the other. And we kind of talked more and more about what he was looking at and what was going on. And eventually I asked him, I said, so what's the common denominator here? Cause you said that there's a problem with the coach and he goes, yeah. And I said, there's a problem with your teammates. Yeah. There's a problem with the trainer. Yeah. What's the common denominator? What, what is the one thing that holds all of those things together? Like this individual finally just kind of took a look at himself and he was like, Oh, well, I'm the one that's like seeing the coach and having a problem with the coach. I'm the one seeing the trainer who's having a problem with the trainer. I'm the one seeing the teammate and having a problem with the teammate. And I go, well, there you go. So is there any perspective that you haven't taken? Have you actually looked at what the coach might be looking at when he's looking at you and getting this feedback? Have you looked at your teammate and been like, okay, so wearing his shoes, how do things look? And, and it was really interesting to see the eye-opening moment where the person was like, oh, so I need to take accountability for some of this stuff and actually kind of look at, at what's going on. So, so maybe even just asking yourself that question, like if you're playing on a team and you're getting frustrated and you say, well, I have an issue with the way that my captain's coach and my team's not competitive, competitive enough, would that maybe be a sign that you may need to look on uh, at yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that if we get into kind of goals and we look at process goals versus outcome goals, sometimes that's where you get hooked too. So I was working with a, an athlete who was only looking at outcome goals and she kept talking about like particular points and particular things. And when we finally got away from the outcome on wins or losses or points or anything like that, but looked more at just the performance and so the performance was just how do you execute particular actions? How do you execute these movements with your body to make sure that they're fluid? Once she started focusing on those things, a lot of the tension she had with other teammates and with her coach, just it just basically evaporated because she was no longer focused on this thing. She's focused on herself and focused on her performance rather than focused on the outcome. So I, I think it's kind of putting some of those things in place and seeing where the focus needs to be, looking at the common denominator, trying to look at things from other people's perspectives. And when you get that stuff together, then the, the individual, like you asked about, it, it gets a lot of that self-reflection, but it also gets the focus back on track. So not only am I questioning myself and how I'm impacting others, I'm also questioning my own performance, not in terms of outcomes, but in terms of my actual performance itself. So the athlete that you mentioned earlier that, um, kind of had that aha moment when you were kind of like, well, what's the common denominator here? Um, and he, he had that moment. How did he progress from that? Did he, did he show a lot of signs of improvement as far as like how he played with it or how he interacted with his teammates or how, I guess, how did he evolve from that moment? It took some time. Um, it, it did evolve. It did progress over time. But a lot of it was that self-check came after the fact too often. So 
he was better able to see others perspective, but not in the moment. So he would still be very reactionary in the moment. And then it would be later when we were consulting and talking that he'd be like, Oh, you know what? I'm wondering if maybe they saw it this way. And it was like, okay, so if they saw it this way, what could have been different? Let me give you a pure example. This particular athlete wasn't very committed or bought in because he felt like he was not really being valued as a teammate. And so he would show up late to practice and he, he did it again and we hadn't addressed it. And so I said, okay, so what is your perspective of the coach? If you're wearing the coach's shoes and one of your guys shows up late, what is that late person? What is, what is that action telling you? And he had already reacted. He had already kind of like, you know, the coach kind of confronted him about it and he was really upset about it. And he's like, you know, what the F, like I have my own life too, like this and everything else. And then when he was looking at it and this was after the reactionary part, he was like, well, maybe, maybe the coach is looking at it. Like I'm not really committed. Like I don't really care. And so I'm showing up late because this doesn't mean anything to me. And I said, so there you go. So wouldn't you, if, if you thought that was somebody's approach, wouldn't you address it? Wouldn't you ask them, Hey, is, is there a reason that you're late? Can you show up on time? Because all of us tried to do it. And so he started to kind of get a better insight into kind of how his nonverbal communication and nonverbal behaviors may be interpreted and read. And instead of just reacting to it, he was trying to process it more. But a lot of times he would respond first and only later when we were talking about it, would he be able to see it. So it took time for him to start doing those things. But then when he started slowing down the process, instead of just responding and reacting, he became a lot more accountable to himself, accountable to the team. And he had a lot more perspective on kind of how things were run. Gotcha. I think... Those type players are the players that another team can mentally get into their head uh, or in a game time situation, sometimes they can get into their own head. So we'll talk about the concept of overcoming your opponent mentally and maybe some in-game techniques for this, but I want to give the example of like a boxing or UFC weigh-in. They, these are two guys that have been training and all of a sudden they just come to a stare down between each other. And I just feel like sometimes a fight may be won at that point just due to the mental aspect of it. And I don't, I have no clue why that is. Or is so, that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that that can happen. And I think that it's, it's that self-doubt and that seed of self-doubt that can really create a lot of tension or make you doubt your own self and your abilities and everything like that. I, I mean, I agree. I, I remember watching Mike Tyson and some of his stare downs and I was like, yeah, I would not want to get in the ring with that guy. Like after just getting <laughs> so there's a lot of like psyching out. And, and if you look at it just in terms of, you know, if, if you want to look at a surface level, there's, there's the trash talk, right. Where you're just basically like, you know, especially any drinking game, you know, uh, beer pong or, you know, Kickball. the Kings and, and Circle of Death and stuff like that. When you're playing those games, there's so much trash talk going on. And it's all surface. It's all right there. It's all verbal communication. And what you're talking about is some of those subtle things that are nonverbal communication that you read way too much into. And by reading into the nonverbal communication, a lot of times it's it's your own projection at yourself. Because nonverbal communication, it does communicate a lot. In fact, they say 80 plus percent of communication is nonverbal. But if there's really just that question of how this person is getting in your head, a lot of it is yourself. You, you yourself are putting all of this stuff in your head about what's going on. So I think 
you know, if you look at trash talk and then you take it to a deeper level where you look at kind of like, okay, so what is this supposed to mean? If you're trash talking and everyone's laughing, that's the point is it's having fun. It's doing that stuff. But if you're trash talking and somebody's just getting irate and really upset and you're like, what's your problem, man? We're just having fun. A lot of times what's happening is the same thing when you're looking at the nonverbals. If you look at nonverbal communication and performance, you can have fun with it. You can think that you're a part of it. Or as soon as you feel like you're not a part of it and it's something aimed at you, that's your own projection, but it's still going to create a lot of self-doubt. It's going to get you down and it's going to make you no longer really a piece of the, of the bigger picture. In talking about that from a kickball standpoint, okay, uh, we're, we'll talk about the trash talk though. Um, but as far as I kind of view that as uh, an underdog versus a team that's expected to win, so to speak, uh, maybe that mentality. And I know, I know we've touched, I think we touched on that in the last podcast, but sometimes there's that perception of, well, we are supposed to lose this game or maybe you've been training hard. So you're like very confident as the underdog going in. Um, maybe is there a way that that could relate to kickball and maybe uh, how you might apply that as a team coming in as a team that's supposed to win versus a team that's supposed to potentially lose. Yeah, so a lot of times the, that underdog mentality, and actually on, on my website, um, www.advancedmindset.com, I actually wrote about that for the World Cup in 2016 because the um, if, you, if you are unfamiliar with the World Cup, Iceland, it was the first time they had ever been in a major tournament and they just like, they were just doing awesome. And so they had this underdog mentality where it was like, they have nothing to lose. They're, they, they could lose a game and they're still in the greatest performance their nation has ever been in, the greatest competition anyway. And so there's, because there's nothing to lose, there, there's just so much more relaxed play and it's all about performance. It's not about outcome. So again, like we just talked about with performance and outcome, if I don't even have to care whether we win or lose, all I have to do is go out and perform. And when I do that, I can perform to my best because I'm focused and my attention is there and everything's just right where it needs to be. And I can enter into hopefully a flow state where everything just kind of falls into place. So when I'm, when I'm supposed, go, go ahead. Yeah. So with that, I go back to that weigh in mentality, right? So you're the underdog, you walk into this and then you stare face to face with your opponent. And now it's Mike Tyson and you're like, I'm about to get my ass kicked. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so I think that there is playing without fear, but then also there's that mentality of realizing who your opponent is. Uh, and I think we have a broad spectrum uh, of kickball teams. Yeah. So I think that sometimes like um, there is that spectrum of one team on a very like, Oh shit, we're about to get our ass kicked versus all right, we're the underdog, but we can beat this team. So maybe the playing without fear, would there be another mentality or like a, something maybe a team could do if they have that concern of just they're like, we know we're the underdog, but we also know we're going to lose? Yeah, you can hit. There's OK, so let's let's go into three different things. The first one is going to be kind of a reset button. A reset button is basically something you have to train yourself personally and then also as a team where Every pitch is its own pitch. You don't worry about the pitch that was before. You want to learn from it. So you want to know like, okay, so where's the play? Is the play at first? Is it at home? Like, where's the play going to be? But regardless of that, you're thinking each pitch is its own performance in and of itself. 
And so you hit the reset button. If you make a mistake, it doesn't matter. I hit the reset and I'm right where I need to be now. And so training yourself to have that reset button and you could do it. If you actually practice, you can practice with the reset button too. And just kind of continue to kind of focus on that idea that I can have fear, but if I reset myself and start over, then it's kind of like, okay, this is where I'm at. And for any, anybody who's a gamer, it's basically the same thing as hitting the reset button on the game and just going like, I can start over if I need to. That mentality has to carry into your performance on the field. So that's one. Another would be something we kind of covered, which is the focus. If you focus on your performance rather than the outcome, if you focus on your values rather than kind of the bigger picture, if you focus on having fun, all of those things are things you can focus on instead of focusing on a mistake you just made or focusing on what the points are or focusing on, you know, how dominant this other team is. Just focus on your, your task and making the team the best it can be. So that's two. The third one is what I tell people is a guaranteed win. And a guaranteed win is basically if you focus on improvement, effort, and persistence. So if I'm going to fight Mike Tyson and I know I don't belong in the ring with him, if all I do is focus on I'm going to improve the way that I've been fighting and I'm going to put in as much effort as possible, even if he's absolutely just demolishing my face, I'm going to put in as much effort as I can and I'm going to be persistent. I'm not going to be stupid. I don't want to come out in a box, right? But I want to look at improvement, effort, and persistence. And if those three things are the things that I'm focused on and the things that I want, I can basically guarantee a win for myself. So I was working with a collegiate wrestler, and he was hands down the favorite to win, you know, the, the big competition. He was like, you know, everyone was like, this guy is the guy. He went into the semifinal match, and he was facing a dark horse, so a, a, a wrestler who was not supposed to be in the finals, or even the semifinals, or even, you know, the, the quarterfinals. This was just a wrestler who was just, he was a dark horse, he just made it. So this guy I was working with went into that match for the semifinal. And he actually ended up losing the match in points. And there were a couple things that were called, and it could have been called one way or the other, and it just fell towards the dark horse's favor. And so this, this athlete lost. And when he walked off the mat, he wasn't discouraged. He was definitely not happy that he hadn't won, but he wasn't discouraged. He wasn't down on himself. He was just looking at it like, you know what? Things fell the way they fell, and, and it just didn't go my way. And there's nothing I could have done about it. Because I put in one of my best performances. I put in as much effort as possible. I even improved on some of the things I wanted to look at fighting, uh, wrestling this guy. And I was persistent. There was no time in that entire match that I gave up. So he came out of it even though he was not winning and even though he ended up losing the match. But he held his head high. He was just he was okay with it. He wiped the floor or wiped the mat with the third place guy. It took third place easily. But it's looking at those things. And if you can reset things when things aren't going right, if you can focus on performance values and fun, and then if you can kind of make sure that for yourself, you're looking at any improvement you can have, putting in as much possible effort as possible, and then the uh, persistence, just making sure that you're very persistent in what you're doing. So even if I'm an underdog and even if this team is absolutely dominant, if I focus on those things, I know that, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm here and I'm playing and I'm doing what I can. So Simon plays on a, a very competitive team. And... You, you talk about that, that idea of uh, the dark horse coming in and then he ended up losing. I also think, I, and I mean, I know you hit on this, uh, but I think that sometimes you get some of people that are very athletic, that have trained, that technically should be better than everyone else. 
and then they they run into like a moment. And I think that ran and you ran into that in your playoffs. Is that right? Right. Like uh, last year, we were in the playoffs, and we ended up playing a team that I feel like we'd already beaten earlier that that seat that season. So I felt pretty confident, but I was injured, so I couldn't play. Um, but we had a catcher who you know disagreed with a lot of the calls that were made. And it just made him shut down. So he, I mean, he's one of the best athletes in the league. And he, it it was so much in his head that he, it was almost the point where he just didn't even play. Like he gave up. And I just, uh, I don't know. I didn't know what to say to him at the time. I felt like everything I said almost made it worse. And, you know, I've talked to him about it afterwards. And he still basically, you know, blames the refs. He didn't, won't take responsibility for it. So, um, I'm just curious if you have any input on that situation. Yeah. So especially when talking to him seems to make it worse. It, it's, it's that reset button is just, it, he's, he's not capable of seeing that. And and that's something you got to train. And I think that trying to find something that he would understand. So working with, uh, do you guys, are you guys familiar with like an agility ladder? Uh, like the, the actual ladder that you jump in and out of? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I was working with an athlete, a a youth athlete on the agility ladder, just trying to kind of get his feet quicker and trying to get his mind right and everything. And so we were talking about the reset kind of idea. And so he's halfway through the ladder and and he misses a step. And so he stops and he goes back to the beginning. And I was like, well, Hey, what was that? And he goes, well, you said you could reset anytime. And I go, Oh, well, I said that mentally. (laughs) So, so I told him if you're running halfway to the, to first base, right. And then you stumble a little bit. Do you stop and go back to home or do you still just do everything you can to get to that first base? And he's like, well, I do everything I can to get to first base. And I go, so there you go. So mentally resetting is not the same as physically resetting yourself. And so if you have an athlete who's, like you said, a particularly good athlete, trying to get them to understand, like if you went into the, if you, if he works out, if you go into the weight room and you know, somebody else is using the bench that you want to use do you leave? Do you just go, well, I guess I'm just not going to, you know, do bench today. I guess I'm just not going to work out. Or do you figure out something else you can do? And so sometimes that'll help click where they're like, oh, wait a minute. No, I just have to think, you know, there's some other way to get this done. That's the same thing with the ref. If, if the ref is making calls that you disagree with, you just kind of think, okay, well, I don't have any control over that. So I'm going to have to focus on something I do have control over. And I'm going to have to hit a mental reset rather than trying to hit a physical reset to try and get things moving. Does that answer your question at all? Yeah, for sure. Well, let me ask you this on that side of it. So um, I just listened to a, a podcast uh, by a guy named Aubrey Marcus. He wrote basically a book, Own the Day, Own Your Life. It's pretty interesting. But he talks about basically uh, reducing your heart rate or his reset button is six breaths. So he is like, I know that if something is not going my way, I breathe in, I breathe out six times and that is technically will reduce my heart rate and will help clear my mind are there techniques like that do you think that's a good technique no Uh, so so what that is is that is his reset button his mental reset and you you described it wonderfully and, and i'm assuming he did in his book and in his podcast because it's he has a physical thing he does that gets the mental part to to follow and so it would be the same thing coaching yourself or or coaching a team where you're like, we have to have some sort of a reset, but having a physical thing that causes that correlates with the mental capacity to do it is really what you're looking for. So breathing is a fantastic one. I've had teams where they come back together and they do basically kind of like 
a team huddle real quick and the team huddle real quick is kind of the reset where they have something that they say. I've had an athlete where he can do like untie his shoes and tie his shoes back on. And then all of a sudden that's like his reset. You can have any sort of little thing that you do. Some athletes don't even need a physical thing, but most, most of them, if you tie it to something physical, it's easier for them mentally to follow. But I have worked with athletes where mentally they can clear the air and just get themselves on track, just mentally getting themselves to that place. That's great. That's great. I think that uh, people walking away with knowing that there is a, I know for me personally, having that sort of reset for myself, like now we're going into something new. Let's clear the mind. Let's do this. I think it's very healthy. Absolutely. So, well, let's talk about, I don't know what your sportsmanship is, but Let's talk, let's talk about the mental edge over your opponent, okay? Um, like you, you mentioned trash talk. I know Simon last year, was it last year or a couple years ago that you ran into that situation? He's a top team, playing a top team. Oh, yeah. Well, this, it actually happened in dodgeball, though. Different, okay. different sport. But, yeah, I just, I just so happened to be hanging out with uh, one of the, you know, team players on the – my opponent's team we were hanging out having drinks and he got to the point where he was loose enough to where he was basically disclosed that their strategy was to kind of get in the head of this couple that played on my team because the uh the female got you know she's very easy to get agitated so then her husband would kind of just stand up for her and so their whole game plan was just to kind of get into her head first and then have him react you know react to that and so I was able to tell my team that when we played them. And so I told them, I was like, Hey, like anytime they trash talk, whatever, just kind of just laugh, just look at them and laugh. Don't say anything back, just laugh. And it totally got into their heads completely. Like they were so baffled. And I don't think the guy that told me that strategy even remembered telling, <laughs> even remember. <laughs> so uh, it was just interesting to see how, um, that kind of like chess match of like strategic getting in someone's head can work out. So are there, are there things that, and I mean, again, I know that you may be like, Hey, sportsmanship, very important. That's fine. I'm fine with that. But are there like techniques that you like to get to gain that mental edge over your opponent? I mean, like getting under the skin of someone who's hot headed, which then causes them to be, the player that is too intense and no one wants to play with them. So then the whole team kind of falls apart type mentality. Yeah. I mean, I think if, if you're looking at sport and you're asking, I think that that's not necessarily being unsportsman. Basically it's, it's taking a different level of the game and it's applying that level of the game to the field. And I think if you look at chess, there's no physical contact whatsoever in chess, but you absolutely psychologically want to get in the other person's head and get them to kind of not, not to doubt themselves to do different things that they're just they're not going to perform well as soon as you do that so i think it's a part of the game i don't think that what you guys are talking about is any anything less than that so makes me feel um, better about myself oh good i appreciate it no i think that absolutely there is a way to do that and there's lots of stuff to do it just depends on the level at which you're playing and it depends on how sheer it's hard to explain because it depends on how perceptive the other team is and at what level you're playing. So there, there's a book called The Art of Learning, which is by Joshua, Joshua Watskin. He's, he's the one who the book and the movie In Search of Bobby Fischer is based. Oh, awesome. 
And so he's, he's this, you know, chess player who's just a phenome and he's from a young age. He talks about the psychological parts of the chess game. He talks about learning. It's a, it's a fantastic read. And he talked about going to this chess competition and he would observe the other kids at the chess competition where he'd be like, you know, this, they're waiting in line to get their meal. And he notices, you know, one of the kids behind him is just tapping his foot because he's like, okay, so this guy does not deal well with patience. If I take my time with this guy, he's going to be impatient. He's going to think, why is this taking so long? And that's going to get him out of his game. Then he noticed another guy who was like a little bit kind of put off by just like, you know, whatever, like they were going for a walk and there was like wind or something. And it was just like, okay, so this is somebody who's not comfortable when something is uncomfortable against his skin or something. So he would try and do little things where he'd be like, how do I make it hotter in here? Or how do I do these little things? And it was nothing that you would think is malicious. It's all stuff that he's just, he's taking all of that information and applying it in a way that allows him to have an opportunity to get in his opponent's head. And so I think it's, it's part of it. So that all said, though, some of the things he did, it's only because the opponent is staring at him the whole time that those perceptions would work. Because if your opponent is, is in, you know, outfield, you know, you're like, well, they're never going to see me. Like, so you have to come up with different things that you can do to kind of get in their head and do different things. And that might be doing bring, uh, during warm up. It might be, you know, sometime you get to see them, you know, coming to the plate and stuff like that. And you're like, I know this person hates it when they have to wait. So I'm just going to go ahead and hold on to the ball longer. I'm going to check first base. I'm going to do some other things because I know they're going to get irritated and they don't perform well when they're irritated. So I'm going to do all of those things to slow everything down before I actually pitch the ball. But there's lots of different ways you can kind of just look and see how they're warming up, what they're doing, uh, how they perform. If somebody gets agitated, how does the rest of the team respond to that? Um, like just, just watching all those things, then in terms of what you do to kind of manipulate those things, again, it depends on how perceptive they are. Cause you could be doing a hundred different things, trying to irritate or agitate that, you know, is going to help you. And none of them are noticing cause they're just there to drink and have fun. And so they're not going to notice any of it. So it really depends on how all of that stuff interlays. So I would say as, as a, as a takeaway on this section here. What might be the uh, the one or two things? I know that you brought up like the idea of a team coming together, which a lot of kickball teams do, close game, eighth inning, come together, rally, three, two, one, whatever, you know, the idea of breath work or things like that. But what might be one or two things that you might recommend for a team or for an individual just as far as that reset button? So the reset button as an individual – like, like we just talked about, trying to find a physical thing makes it easier for the mental thing to follow. So the breath or untying and retying your shoes. A lot of baseball players, you'll see them mess with their gloves. Tennis players, you'll see them mess with the mesh in the, in the racket. Um, and it's just, it's different things that allow you to reset. So it's finding something that you can use and something that's easy and something that you can do anywhere on the field, whether you're playing offense or defense. You want to have it something that can be used at different places. So I would try that as a team coming together, having a particular chant that you use. Like, what was that one with the golf commercial? Uh, Dilly Dilly. Was that it? <laughs> Is it Budweiser or something? Bud yeah, yeah, something like that. Where, where, so I had a, a, a team where they said Dilly Dilly and Dilly Dilly was what they were using to basically say like, yeah, whatever. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, and that was their reset. And so one guy would say Dilly Dilly and then they'd all be yelling Dilly Dilly, Dilly Dilly. You know, it was just a way for them to just kind of be like, yeah, whatever we're playing. You know, so so I think coming up with a few things that are easy and then starting to implement them. 
Yeah, I've found that if your team has any kind of kind of uh, routine that they do um, that kind of shows unity, it can really annoy the other team. And like we like on my team, we anytime we get an out, so I'm in the outfield and I say, "All right, wild man, one down," and then the rest of the team says, two to go." And other teams, they hate it. Like they get so annoyed by it, and which makes me love it. And which, which is why we still do it. We're always going to do it. Kind of a way to get a mental edge. That's awesome. You know, one of the things I really enjoyed watching uh, Bundesliga soccer is the announcer for, on the big the big PA. The announcer will always say whenever the the home team scores. So let's say it's Bayern Munich, and they go, "Okay, Bayern Munich just scored." So no, Bayern Munich is one. And then the entire crowd, the entire stadium says, "You know, Schalke zero. And it doesn't matter if Schalke's winning four to one because Byron scored the goal, the entire stadium yells zero for the other team. So that could be one you guys could use where every time you guys score a run or anytime, you know, that happens, you guys always just say your score and then zero for the opponent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, we talked about, you talked about Iceland, like that, just their fans, that cheer they did before the games. I feel like that was super intimidating and like really cool. Like that clap they did. Yeah, we, no, that, that was super a, awesome. a kickball tournament. We we had a drum and everything. It was really fun. Very cool. One thing that I wanted to go back to for just a second. Yeah. When we were talking about the idea of like the team reset, uh, was the idea of having a, like a mantra. Yeah. Which I know, Simon, your team your team has it on the back of their jerseys, right? Yeah, ours is uh, fun comes first. So does winning. <laughs> nice. I mean, okay. the fact that you said nice bothers me a little bit. But <laughs> yeah, so they're obviously a very competitive team. Um, but a team starting out, like beginning of the season, do you think it's important that they establish, like that establishes for Simon's team, hey, we want to be winners. But do you think that's important to establish something like that at the start of a season? I really think that is important because like I said, when we have the forming, storming, norming, and then performing of the phases that a team goes through or any group goes through, it's having that common objective or common goal ties them together. And then they have to feel like they're a cohesive unit, like they, they belong together somehow. And so when you have some sort of a mantra or something that ties you together, then it really makes it more pronounced and it makes it easier for the buy-in and easier for people to kind of direct themselves into that team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, when I was thinking about it, I was just like, you know what, that that's a pretty good reset. Like I play on a, a team called the Woost, which is a, it's a combination of the Wu-Tang clan. And then there's a restaurant here called the Roost uh, breakfast restaurant owners run the whole, you know, the, the team. And ours, we always say Wu-Tang is for the children. A <laughs> <laughs> little bit different, but at the same time, you know, we care about the kids. That's awesome. So let's dive into the last little bit here. When players go through an injury, kind of that m- mentality through recovery um, and just kind of, I guess, different phases of that and, you know, what you'd like to share on that. Yeah, I, I like how you said phases, because I think if we look at the phases of injury and then recovery we kind of have the the crisis is when the injury happens and you have to figure out what you're going to do 
Then there's the information. So what information do I have that tell me about the injury and how long it's going to take to recover and what sort of things I have to look for for recover? What are my options for recovery? Then you have basically the map or the path that's laid out for you where it's like, these are the things I'll need to do or the things I'll have to do to get myself back up on track and moving and functioning. Then you have improvements where you kind of try and measure how am I improving? How am I getting through this? Where can I see that I'm getting myself back to where I want to be? Then you might have like a physical clearance from a PT or from an MD or somebody telling you physically you are capable of performing what it is you want to perform. But then that's also scaffolded. So it's not that you can just go out and just do everything. It might be, okay, so now you're allowed to walk without crutches or walk without a boot or you're allowed to run the bases, but I don't want you kicking the ball yet or whatever they say. And so you have that physical component. And what's missing from most of the kind of recovery stuff is the psychological component and the psychological recovery, because you might be no longer physically injured, but mentally you're still fearful of doing some of those things that you were doing before or doing them as intensely as you did them before. Or there might be particular skills that you second guess yourself or hesitate, or you might try to perform them in a different way than you did before because of the injury. And all of that stuff is just, it's so important for the recovery and so important for the psyche of the athlete getting themselves back to where they want to be. So that's where I'll start is just with those phases. I like how you mentioned the kind of the, the phases, like you mentioned the one of like getting the information, the type of injury I'm dealing with right now, like it, it's kind of rare. And so I got misinformation the first time that I got diagnosed and it's, essentially like I had a hamstring tendon pull off of my shin bone. And so I thought that it was, I thought I blew out my knee because it felt very like behind my knee. And so I got an first got an x-ray, which kind of a waste of time, got the MRI. And what they told me was, okay, yeah, your hamstring pulled off your, you know, your shin bone essentially. Um, but that's what we normally use to repair ACLs. So, it should heal. You should be able to, you know, you should be fine like four to six weeks. Well, it wasn't fine. And so I went back and it was, they're like, Oh no, six to eight months is what we were, you know, were trying to tell you, which is not what they told me. It's <laughs> a pretty big difference too. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So <clears throat> it's just been, you know, a little stressful because, you know, when they do that for ACL repairs, they're surgically doing it, removing, you know, removing that tendon. Whereas mine was, you know, complete avulsion, like it just broke off. So I just don't think they even know how to rehab it. I've gone to physical therapy, everything seemed fine. But yeah, I think when you mentioned like that whole idea of like getting the proper knowledge and information uh, is totally key. And I, I realize that now because I just didn't get the right information. I think that where I comment on that is setbacks. And so what you did is you got information, but it was misinformation. And so then mm -hmm. when you have the actual real real information, then it's a setback and setbacks suck even more because it's like, not only am I injured and I went through the crisis, but then I also went through the information component, but that set me back again. Cause now I'm going to have to go through the information component again. And that means I'm resetting myself on this path to recovery to the, basically the second phase, the second step. And so setbacks are really difficult because setbacks tell you that I'm falling behind where I want to be the way that I had planned out to come back to perform whatever sport it is, is now delayed even longer than I thought it was. And it can be really demotivating because you kind of feel like 
you know, some, sometimes what's the point and sometimes like, okay, so, so where is the silver lining in all of this? And that can sometimes be really hard to find. Yeah. I mean, and I'm 35, so it's one of those things where, you know, at what age you're just like, well, I guess that's, (laughs) that's just my body now. Like I can't do it. I mean, like for me, I've kind of, I'm hopeful that I'll be able to play, but it, it does, it has changed my mentality as far as like kind of phasing out and taking more on just like a captain role instead of a player role. Yeah. And so certainly you can focus on different things. That's, that's one of the things I recommend to a lot of athletes is when you're injured, you can focus on so many other details that you were not focusing on before because you have to balance it with all of these physical things. And as soon as you back off from the physical things, you can start paying attention to other things. So you could pay attention to the mental game. You could pay attention to leadership. You could pay attention to all those different aspects, techniques, tactics, different things that can kind of get you in there. You can actually still use a lot of the physical things. You could just say like, okay, so the physical component, whatever injury I have, I have to focus on a different physical component. So you could say with my knee, I can't put like pressure on it and I can't have any impact, but I can get on a cycler and I can cycle all I want. So it's like, so now instead of performing all of these impact things, I'm just going to do cycling and that's going to be great cardio because I can just focus on that because I can't do the other things. Or if I'm focusing on just the mental part of the game, I can focus on those mental skills that will allow me to be a better and better performer because I'm focused on that aspect that I've usually taken for granted or that I haven't had the ability to focus on because I haven't had the time. And so finding something else that you can pay attention to in the sport that allows you to still continue to compete to some degree is fantastic way to help you kind of recover and get through it. And it also helps with a lot of the motivation. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, I've, I've had injuries in the past and I've usually, you know, known how to handle them. This is the first time I've really just, you know, it's brand new territory. I, but I can remember in the past, like playing, playing injured, like where you're able, you're able to still play a game. Like I, I remember playing a basketball game, you know, with an injury, but what it, what it allowed me to do was focus more on the mental aspect. Like you said, like, it was almost like the old guy at the YMCA who's playing basketball. Like he can't do all that. He can't dunk it, whatever, but he's thinking about all the mental aspects of setting picks, making the, the right movement without the ball, that kind of thing. So it can kind of, you can almost make it work to your advantage in some, in some aspect, like you were, like you were saying. Definitely. Another thing that you mentioned that kind of another direction we could take this when you're looking at it and, and you slow things down. So when you're observing rather than actually performing in the actual event, when you're observing from the outside, sometimes you pick up a lot more kind of aspects of the game that you would not have observed before because you'd be focused on your, your role or, or your position. And so right. seeing it from an observer, you get to see a lot more parts of the game that you may not have paid attention to. Yeah, I mean, that's like very similar to uh, the superhero Daredevil where yeah. he can't uh-huh. see it all and it enhances all of his other aspects of his uh, of his game. Let me ask you this in relationship to that. As people go through these different phases, what might be some mindful things that they could be doing to make sure that they don't get frustrated, that they don't get angry, that they're having to go through these things? Part, I like how you said mindfulness because mindful in and of itself is something that can help with recovery. So a lot of times I'll tell athletes, the more you slow things down, the faster the recovery is going to happen. The more you try to go fast, the more risk you're taking that you're going to get another setback. 
And so being mindful, just focusing on breathing, focusing on recovery, focusing on your body, all of those things can help in recovery. And knowing that you're doing it for that purpose, some of these bigger guys, like professional athletes who just have, you know, these monstrous bodies and stuff like that, who are just like, you know, let me go, let me, let me, let me conquer. And you're like, well, you need to slow down and you need to focus on something else. They don't want to hear that. And they, they get angry. Like you said, they get angry because they can't do stuff. But then as soon as you talk about mindfulness, they're like shut down. They're like, no, I don't want to breathe. I don't want to look at these things. And you're like, well, if you do this, you will recover faster. And then all of a sudden the buy-in's there because it's like, oh wait, you're telling me that if I actually slow things down and focus on my breathing, I'll be able to dominate again faster than if I don't do this. Like, so, yes. But let's, let's, let's talk about that for one second. So what is, what is that? What is a technique for that? So, so that mindfulness, basically the best definition for it and the best way to describe it is by John Kabat-Zinn. And he has researched it for decades and it's basically paying attention in a particular way on purpose in the present moment with not without using judgment. So if we break that down, it's paying attention in a particular way. And that particular way that you're paying attention is to something. So like breathing, I'm paying attention in a particular way to my breathing, how I feel the air moving through my nose or my throat, how I feel it filling my lungs, how I feel it leaving all that's paying attention in a particular way. And it's purposeful. The purpose of it is to be mindful of it and to pay attention of it and become more aware of it than I have been before. And then it's in the present moment. So I'm not thinking about the next breath. I'm not thinking about the breath I just had. I'm only thinking about the one that's happening in this moment. The last part is that it's non-judgmental, which means basically that I'm not going to judge myself on whether it's a good breath or a bad breath or, oh, shoot, I started to think of something else and now I didn't do it right it's just accepting all of that and just saying, I'm not going to judge any of that. I'm just going to refocus myself, try and get myself back on track and kind of get this moving in the same direction. So that definition and those four components make up mindfulness and it's highly, highly effective. So let me ask you on that, on that side of it. So there's definitely, there's like, there's apps for these things, like 10% happier, I think is one right now that's out there. Uh, but there's a handful, like you could just look it up on YouTube. And you could look up yeah. mindfulness and it will give you, you know, 10 minutes of it. And it, to me, you brought up in the last podcast, the concept of thinking about doing a curl, right? And those people over time, somehow their bicep got a little bit stronger. Correct. Uh, this is like the way that they've, uh, they've talked about it is like, it's like refocusing for your brain or, you know, like a bicep curls for your brain where you are breathing you lose concentration you focus back on breathing increasing focus and things like that but how does that relate to the injury side or like how do, how is that applicable to someone going through an injury there's multiple ways i'm going to answer that and the, the, so the first way is is what we've already been talking about is basically the slowing the body down and by slowing the body down what you're doing is you're allowing it to heal itself and you're also making it so that the stress hormones so like when we're stressed out, when we're upset, when we're angry because of the injury and stuff, all of these hormones pour into our body that create the fight or flight response, which is not conducive to heal because that's when the body's trying to protect itself because it thinks it's being threatened. And so doing mindfulness and being able to focus on your breath, it gets rid of those hormones or at least diminishes them so that your body can do what it's trying to do to heal. I really like how you brought up the 
um, the study by Uhl that basically showed that you can actually increase muscle mass in your bicep by thinking about doing curls rather than actually doing them. And they've replicated the study so we know that it's legit. But basically, you can do the same thing by thinking about how your body is healing. So for you and your injury, if you think about and you have to know the anatomy. So I would I would Google how the anatomy is supposed to look with the hamstring connecting with the ligament down to your shin. And I, I recommend to most people look for a drawing, not look for something that's an actual cadaver, because some people get really freaked out <laughs> All right. when they're Googling some of these things and they're pretty gruesome. But you basically look at what does the anatomy actually look like? And then once you look at what the anatomy looks like, you mentally picture it healing itself in your, in your body. So you mentally picture that ligament reattaching to the shin. You, you imagine it getting tighter. You imagine all of those things attaching to the bone and getting tighter and tighter. You imagine the hamstring getting stronger. Doing that imagery while you're doing the mindfulness and the breathing by focusing on that Research has shown that you will actually come back faster and stronger than had you not done that imagery and that, that kind of mindfulness. I, yeah, I, I think that's a huge component of my injury is because they weren't, they made it clear that it would never reattach to my shin bone. And so that for, for me, that was super confusing. I'm like, so where does it go? What's happening? And they're like, oh, it just becomes scar tissue and fuses with the muscles around it. Uh -huh. So for and they're, like, and they're like that's your new tendon and I, so for me it's so hard to to visualize that and and they yeah I don't think they could even kind of paint that picture to me so that's a, like a huge component of why this injury is such a a huge setback for me I've had hamstring you know tears in the past it's always been like kind of the middle of my hamstring and you know you it's very easy for me to visualize what's going on there. But with this one, I'm just like, I don't know how this is even healing. I don't know how it, you know, could connect. So I need to do more research, basically. Is what... Yeah, yeah. So so imagine, if, if you will, imagine that you have like um, some sort of a, a, a tube. Like we could say it's a paper towel tube that's cardboard, right? Right. And then you have a, um, like a... a a string that you would use for a kite. So just a white string that kind of attaches to that. And what it is, is it's attached to that by glue, but only a, an inch of it is attached to the actual tube. Make sense? Right. Okay. Now imagine that you ripped that string off. So this, the glue came undone, right? Uh-huh. Okay. Then you're going to lay that string across the tube again, and you're going to use duct tape this time and use about two inches instead of an inch. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah. Okay. The duct tape is the scar tissue. So the scar tissue is a lot more, it's, it's, it's wider and it's covering more space and it's connecting to other tissues, not just the bone itself. It's connecting to other tissues that are down there. So instead of the glue, which was very precise, the duct tape is covering a, a, a wider area. And because that scar tissue is kind of getting tighter there, that's how I need you to imagine that muscle reattaching is you need to imagine all of that getting tighter and fusing. So if, if some athletes, what I tell them to do is imagine that the scar tissue is hands and those hands are starting to grip. And as they grip tighter and tighter, it gets stronger and stronger. And you have multiple hands gripping all these different areas down there that get the hamstring tight again. 
that's that's i mean how much do i owe you for that yeah <laughs> simon is actually healed <laughs> and he is ready to play awesome so what uh what might be some other things we talked about the mindfulness on the the visualization side what might be anything else you might want to dive into on that side of it uh communication and social support so i think that when when you're injured and you try to get that social support whether it's from um you know medical providers family teammates coaches whoever it's going to be having that social support is vital but it's also very important that you share with them how you want their help so when you're coming back to the team and it's the, you know, you're, you're coming in and you're at warm up and it's the 10th player to walk up and ask, yeah, yeah. How's it, how's it going? How's your injury? And you're like, you know what, if I could just announce to the whole freaking team, instead of repeating this every two minutes, it would probably be a lot healthier for me. And so letting them know how to help is just as important as letting them help. So some athletes, they want their coaches to check in with them. Some athletes are like, no, leave me alone until I'm recovered. Other athletes are like, no, I want them to actually be part of the decision making. And so all of it is just communication. But that social aspect really can help you still feel like you're part of something. And like we talked about with motivation, right? That was collectiveness is a big part of motivation. If I'm not feeling like I'm a part of the collective of the team because of my injury, it's going to be harder for me to come back. I'm not going to be as motivated. And then I might just think about walking away. And so if you socially do that and you get that stuff in there and you can do it in a way that allows you to kind of feel like this is the way I would want it to happen, it can really help with the recovery and help with your motivation and the team and just kind of moving forward that way. The last thing that I'd say is probably journaling. And I know everyone kind of balks at that because, you know, it's journaling and we all think about writing in a diary and like, you know, oh, that's for my sister who's like four years younger than me and, yeah, we you know, all that both eye rolled. <laughs> <laughs> not really, not really. I actually so journaling you can do on your phone now. You can just turn on your phone and hit record and just start talking. And what I think is so important about journaling is that you might be two weeks into your recovery and feel like nothing has changed. And it's because every day you're asking yourself, how is the injury going? How do I feel? And you're not noticing any difference. And then if you actually journaled and you look at two weeks ago, you're like, oh my God, man, I'm doing so much better than I was two weeks ago. This is awesome. It also helps you if you ever get re-injured to go back through your old journals and be like, this is what I need to expect from recovery. This is the things that, these are the things that happened. And this is the way that I get myself back on track. So I think journaling is definitely very, very effective, especially for, for injury. And I recommend it even for, for performance, but yeah, especially for injury. We, we talked earlier about Simon's that one player on Simon's team that kind of got mentally in his head. Uh, so what's, what's odd about this is this was the same time that Simon became injured. Okay. So Simon captain of his team, highly competitive team. And as an observer of this game, I could see Simon's frustration because he wasn't able to play uh -huh. on top of that. I could also see that his team felt like I almost felt like they gave up. Because their leader, who I've seen, I mean, you want to you want to talk about a player, and I'll build Simon up for two seconds. Uh, but a, a player that really can like snowball a game, like when no one else is playing to their potential, like the type of player that you can put the team on your back and make a play when it needs to happen. Uh, that type of player. Well, now all of a sudden, their captain, this player is out, and other people need to step up. 
other people need, you know, the team needs to come together. What, uh, what might you recommend in a, in a situation like that? You talk about that social setting. Right. So if the, if the injury is not so great that you have to leave the game, if you can stay at the game and cheer them on and help direct, then that's definitely something that can be very powerful and helpful. If you're unable to do that, then trying to have a different teammate step up into that role of leadership, you know, it would have been wonderful if it had been the catcher who was feeling down and like he had stepped into that role. But if you, if you have that backup or if you're not so injured, you have to leave, then having the ability to be like, no, I can stay here and I can continue to kind of root the team and get things moving, then that can be like a big patch that can kind of come through. That would have been nice, yeah, had the catcher stepped up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another aspect, you know, when you're dealing with injury is just, yeah, like you said, uh, the mental aspect of it for me, because I, I, I live off of playing sports. I play volleyball, soccer, kickball, dodgeball. And like not being able to play sports is like super depressing. I mean, it's it's how it was my how you release from frustrations, life, that kind of stuff. So you mentioned journaling. Is there another? Is there a replacement behavior when you're so attached to like playing sports or being active? Is there a replacement behavior that's you recommend as a healthy alternative? So maybe like alcohol. Like <laughs> you get injured, just start drinking heavily. No, I'm joking. Uh, so I, I really think it's it's trying to find either how you can engage in the sport or sports, uh, plural, stepping away from so much of the participation in the sense of a player, but more participation as a coach or participation as a mentor and kind of moving through it that way. The other thing you can look at is there are so many sports you can play where you don't have to be as active. There's, you know, looking at cornhole or billiards or you know, golf. Um, there's all these different ways you can continue to have sport be a part of your life and just kind of be like, okay, but I'm going to have to play it differently. Even, even like, so with injury, when I, I was working with a basketball player and he was just so down and everything. And as soon as I got him playing a game of horse, like he just lit up, he was like, he was all back into it and everything. And it was because this was something he loved to do. He couldn't run up and down the court. He couldn't jump. He couldn't do it, but he could play horse. And all of a sudden, he was just absolutely in it. So it's it's finding what can you do, how do you still participate, and then how do you feed that so that it continues to make you feel like your passion is being met. Makes sense, yeah. Like I think darts something I can do right now. So there you go. Well, John, once again, can't thank you enough. If people want to find you, uh, did you say Advanced Mindset? Correct. Yeah. AdvancedMindset.com. Uh, any other ways to reach out to you or anything you'd like to plug? Uh, so Advanced Mindset, it's got a whole lot of different blog posts I've put up. It's also got a couple other interviews, including the one we did earlier. Um, and then from Advanced Mindset, you can email me, call me, uh, any of that stuff. And, you know, I, I do um, sessions remotely, so we can always Skype and do stuff like that. But, you know, it's it's just been awesome. And I really appreciate you guys uh, having me back. It's It's been very, very fun to talk about this in the uh, kickball world. <laughs> yeah. And again, appreciate you being, uh, being on the podcast. Yeah. Anytime. Thanks guys. Thanks so much, John.